We, we have plenty of voices, plenty of cultural realities that are speaking into our lives all the time. We need to hear from you. We are a people who live by your word. And we don't just mean that in the sense that we love your word and we want to hear from your word. Your word is life to us. We don't have life without it. We don't know how to do life without it. And so speak. Speak through your word today by your spirit. Change us. Soften us where we need to be softened. Harden us where we need to be hardened. Make us more and more like Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to turn to your Bibles to two passages of Scripture, Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we continue on in a series called Blueprints, God's Good Design for Family and Church, in a world that's kind of confused about a lot of things that have to do with gender and gender roles and all of that. We want to make sure the church, as a church, we're not confused, that we're looking to God's word. And when I told Joanne that I was preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 today, some of you will get this joke. She said, well, I wasn't going to wear a hat today, but I will. <laughs> so that, so that kind, of, kind of, so she is wearing a hat today. So um, we're going to talk about this passage of scripture and what it actually means for the church and and look at the cultural realities, but also look at the longstanding eternal truth of God's word. And we want to make sure we're coming underneath that. Um, we as a people want to be a people who submit ourselves to God's word. We, we look to God for the design for our lives, God for the, as, for the design for our families and for the church. The, there's, a preva- there's a prevailing so-called wisdom of this world that says that gender and sexuality and gender roles are just social constructs, and there are some social constructs that we want to we want to deny, we want to get away from. There's a traditionalism that isn't biblical. There's a there's there are ideas out there that have been touted as being the right way that have nothing to do with what the Bible has to say, and yet there are all of these realities that kind of come to this point, what the Bible calls sin culture says is just nature taking its course and there's a real danger there for us right so you've heard this phrase born this way and as a way of beginning i just want to say this really plainly okay cool with that and don't walk out give me a chance to explain the bible is full of realities for us in romans chapter one that we're going to look at in just a moment proves to all of us that all of us were born this way Born sinners, born far from God, born darkened in our understanding, darkened in our desires, darkened in our being. And we need the light of the gospel to speak into our lives, to change us, to transform us. We need to be moved from born this way to reborn this way. That's the whole whole hope of the gospel. That's why we exist as a church. That's what we just celebrated in the baptismal waters is we're all born this way, far from God. And we all need the light of the gospel. Just a couple of questions to kind of get us started here. If people are born a certain way, does that really excuse their sinful desires? I was born with desires, but if I act those desires out, and believe me, sometimes on a Thursday, there are desires I have when I get a phone call that if I were to act out those desires, they would be sinful. Right? There's some responses that I have a desire to do, but if I were to do it, it would be sinful. I was born with desires, and if I act outside of God's construct, God's blueprint, God's design for those desires, it would be sinful. So born this way with desires, yes, but acting those desires out 
is a completely different issue. Is it possible that the curse of sin and death has so marred humanity and the image of God imprinted on us that it's not just a spiritual reality, but it's also a mental and emotional and even a physiological reality that even to the very core of our DNA, we are broken. This would explain a lot, wouldn't it? It would explain not only the actions of people, but it would explain sicknesses. It would explain why we live in a world that doesn't look like the Garden of Eden, because it's all under the curse of sin and death. And that leaves people far from God. Is it possible that the curse of sin and death has so separated sinful humanity from God's way of seeing the world that the so-called wisdom or the so-called ideas and culture is really just foolishness? Is really just so far removed from God's ideas that it would begin excusing evil actions as good because humanity no longer has the capability to actually understand what good and evil is because we're so far from God. I think this is what Romans 1 is really saying about humanity in the light of sin. Human beings are by nature in rebellion against God and his design. So look at verses 21 through 28 of Romans chapter 1. It says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So the argument here is God has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed his created order. He's revealed his attributes. He is known by his creation. And when we as created beings exchange positions with God and we start trying to figure things out on our own instead of listening to our creator, then we don't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. What Paul's argument here is is really simple, and it flows really plainly. Human beings do not honor God as God. In our natural, created way, God made us good. We rebelled. And in that rebellion, under the curse of sin and death, we do not honor God as God. Even if we know the truth, unless we are brought into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we're not going to honor God as God. What it's going to look like is we're darkened in our understanding of the truth about God and ourselves. Verse 21, that they thought they were wise, but they actually became fools. That They are even proven to be fools in verse 22. At the base of all of this, it's human beings will naturally in our sinful state elevate creation, namely ourselves, over and above God. So we'll begin to look at ourselves as king and queen. We'll put ourselves on the throne. We want our independence and our freedom over God's independence and his freedom. And so what humans do is we exchange God's natural purposes for our own personal passions. It's an easy step, isn't it? Then when we're the ones on the throne, then we get to decide what to do. 
Once we take the place of God in our minds, then our actions will follow. And this is the argument. Humans then stand under judgment because of what ought not to be done. But then he goes on in verse 32. So just look at that real quick. Though they know God's righteous decree, even though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, that not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It gets to the point, not just that people reject God, want to take his place, then act out accordingly based on their own desires. It then gets to the point of humanity begins to call what is evil good and what is good evil. I don't know about you, but does this describe 2021 to anyone else? Here's the thing. It also described 1961 and 1221 and 4000 B.C. It's not just 2021. This is the reality of humanity outside of the work of Christ, outside of a relationship with Christ. This is nothing new. This is Paul writing this 2000 years ago, and it's in the past tense. God's already done this. God's already given people over to their passions. This is the state of the world. We're just getting really good at it now. This is where we are as humanity. So this week, I want us to understand something that only when the light of the gospel breaks through the darkness of our hearts and our minds, only when the light of Jesus breaks into the darkness in people's lives, can a man or a woman think of God correctly or think of themselves correctly correctly. So it's no wonder our culture is messed up. It's no wonder our world is messed up about gender roles. The Bible tells us we can't think straight. It's, it's literally, you're not thinking right. Yeah, they're not thinking right. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. The surprise should come is when Christians aren't thinking right. Because we have the light of the gospel. We have the light of God's word. Because God has given us his gospel and his spirit, his word. We as Christians should want to know the truth about God's blueprint for his people. We should want to submit to it. So I want to really explore why so many people have such a problem with God's word when it comes to gender roles. And especially in the church. Pastor Kenny did a fantastic job a couple of weeks ago looking at marriage and the the way the Bible speaks to those gender roles in marriage and family. And today I want us to see that there's a crossover between marriage and the family and the church, that the same aspects of leadership and submission and roles and responsibilities extend and are even more fully seen in the body of Christ inside the church. What happens in your home isn't seen by everybody. What happens as a church is more public. And so we have to be even more careful about coming underneath God's word and submitting to God's Word. So the, the picture is this. The church of Jesus Christ is a household of faith. It's like taking what's supposed to be happening in the home and putting it on a grander scale, putting it on a platform, putting it on stage for the world to see. And not just the world, but the heavenly hosts to see that this is what God's redeemed people Look like That's why Paul describes in Ephesians 2, the church is the household of God. In Galatians 6, he calls it the household of God. Of faith, Even in the qualifications for elders and pastors, he says that a, a man must be able to manage his own home well before he's even considered to be able to manage the household of faith well. 
So we want to make sure we get this right because all of this is us putting God on display. We as the church putting God on display. We don't want to put the wrong image of God out to the world. We want to put his image out clearly, and he has told us who he is in his word. It's not in our minds. It's not in our thoughts. It's not in our civilization. It's in his word. So the image of God and man and woman created as good has been so marred by sin and rejected by mankind. It's been replaced by a foolishness and personal passions. But what God's doing in the church is he's restoring that image in Christian families and in Christian churches, all to display the glory of Jesus Christ. Ligon Duncan, when asked why these issues of gender and gender roles in the church are so important, he gave these reasons for covering them. One is we want to foster biblical manhood and womanhood in the church because it's never safe for Christians to act unbiblically. That just sounds so clear. And yet it seems like so hard for us to apply, right? The Bible says, do this. We should do this. And it's never wise for Christians to act unbiblically. It's never safe for us. If the Bible teaches us to do something and we ignore that, we can be sure that it will come back to haunt us because God doesn't say something for nothing in his word. Secondly, we've said that we want to foster biblical manhood and womanhood in the family and the church because when biblical manhood and womanhood is denied or altered or unpracticed, when we do it wrong or we don't do it at all, when it's rejected or it is manipulated, it always results in disasters of one sort or another for families and marriages and for children and communities where the teaching of the scripture is ignored. Church, isn't it good news that God gave us his word so that we don't have to guess? So stop guessing. So we don't have to go, well, I think... We can say God said. That's got to be the basis for the way we do things. In our own personal lives, it seems like we, we get that. In our families, we, we do that. Sometimes when it comes to the church, but I want, but I think, but we want to come back to God's word. I can't be guilty of saying I think. I've got to come back to God's word. You can't be guilty of saying I think. You've got to come back to God's word. Word. Isn't it good news that we don't have to guess? We're not left wondering how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to do this, how we're supposed to do church, how we're supposed to glorify God as men and women. Isn't it good news that God is so gracious to his people that he protects us from ourselves through his word by telling us what he desires? He protects us from our own passions and desires that can easily entangle us. Of course, these truths in the Bible are countercultural, but so is the gospel. Not exactly popular to stand and look somebody in the face in our culture and say, you're a sinner. But that's the gospel. The gospel starts there. We have to understand the need. You can't save yourself. Nothing you can do can make you right before God. It's not a popular message because we're so me-centered as a culture. But there is good news. Applied rightly, these aren't dangerous or destructive things. These are God's design and they are for our good. What is destructive and dangerous is seeing clearly in God's word what he teaches and then choosing to do something else. That's destructive and dangerous, to follow our own desires and wisdom. So I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. We're going to look at one of the so-called troublesome passages when it comes to men and women in the church, because I ain't afraid. I'm not scared 
Don't worry, I'm going to hit another one next week. I'm a little scared about that one. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to follow along in your copy of God's Word with verse 3. I want you to understand. I love that he says that. He starts there. I want you to understand. He doesn't go, I'm going to tell you everything, and then I'm going to try to explain it to you. He goes, this is what I want you to understand. Before I get into anything else, before I start talking about head coverings or symbols or whatever, I want you to understand this, verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's the point. Underline it, highlight it, whatever you got to do, that's the point he wants to get across. Every man who prays or prophesies, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Says it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That, that goes back to that created order, right? The same thing that he was saying in Romans chapter 1. It's unnatural to do things a certain way. It wasn't, we weren't created this way. This is the way God designed it. Man was made uh, was not made from woman, but woman from man. Verse 9, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He needed a helper. He needed a helper. He wasn't complete. He needed a helper. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The angels are watching to see if we're actually going to follow their king. They were already wondering, why would you bother with those people? All they do is reject you. Now the question is, are we going to follow what he says? Hmm. Verse 11, nevertheless, and the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man a woman. Please underline that verse because that's the one everybody leaves out. We get into this discussion of what can men do? What must women do? What must we do? And we forget verse 11, that neither is independent of the other. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Once again, he goes arguing back to nature. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So let, let me start here. Because there's a lot there. There's much more at stake here than head coverings. Head coverings aren't the point. He says it in verse 3. I want you to understand this. And it's all about leadership and submission. I want you to get that. Don't miss that. But also don't miss verse 16. Because it really hits the nail on the head. It really hits the mark. There is an inclination in all of us to be contentious. And he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious... We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. He's saying, if you're hearing what I'm saying and your reaction, your first reaction is, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, but don't you understand? But, but what about, then what we're doing in that moment is being contentious with the word of God. We should seek to understand the word of God, not change the word of God. We should seek to understand and apply the word of God and be changed by the word of God, not Alter the word of God to fit something that works for us. Paul's argument here is don't just hear the word of God and start your response. But yeah, but what about instead 
here and in other places, but specifically here, he wants us to hear this. Our church and every church should follow these guidelines, this blueprint, not because they are culturally relevant, not because other churches are doing it, but because we are the church of God. And to contend with God's word is to contend with the God we say we worship. Is everybody with me on this? When we hear God's word and we go, yeah, yeah, but, but we're not just fighting God's word. We begin to fight the God who spoke it. Right? We, we, we honor the Lord by following what he says. The, the church of God honors God by submitting to God and his blueprint for the church. And God's design for men and women in the church revolves around two things, form and function. Form and function. And so we want to start with the idea of function. It's here in verse 3. You'll see it. We're going to spend most of our time on form. Next week we're going to deal a lot with function. But he does hit on function here in verse 3. God's design is for men and women to be equal in worship and united in submission. That's an issue of function. Look at verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There is submission and leadership happening here in this verse. This is all about function. Paul here shows an equal desire for men and women to be found obedient and righteous before God. He wants men and women to be obedient. He's not sitting there and saying, hey, women, this is what you better be doing. And hey, men, that tends to be the way we apply these verses. The way we tend to apply these verses now, I don't think women should. I don't think women should, but nobody's talking about what men should do from these verses most of the time. But Paul is equally concerned about men and women in this passage. Everybody catch that? He's, he starts with men. He doesn't start with women. So men, before we start applying this to our wives and to people, women in the church, we might want to apply it to ourselves. And women, vice versa. We need to apply these things to ourselves. He's showing an equal desire for men and women to be found obedient and righteous before God. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. He's not just going to say, hey, ladies, the best among you is the one who can look the cutest on Sunday morning. That would be demeaning. No, he's concerned about the whole woman standing righteous before God. He understands that the whole person needs to submit to God and his plan. Submission to God and to his order and design is best for his people. He's not just saying men, whoever can dress the best and look the strongest, you got it. He's giving biblical guidelines for what it looks like. And it starts with men submitting to Christ as their head. The order of submission is seen In the created order, he says that in verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man, right? This is the way things were created in the first place. And the order of submission is seen in the function of the three persons of the Trinity, each equal in value, united in love, same in glory in essence, but distinct in their roles. Even our statement of faith, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says, the eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. 
And each person of the Trinity acts out this equal worth and this holiness in a loving, active submission to one another. That's why he says in verse 3, he doesn't just say that men have a head who is Christ and women, wives to their husbands, but the head of Christ is God. It's not that God is more valuable than Christ or greater than Christ. In fact, he uses the term Christ there instead of Jesus, the personal name of God, because Christ was the operative title of Jesus. Christ was the office, the function of Jesus. He was the Messiah. He's the king. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. And so he's saying in function, the sons, the Christ is submitting to the father in his will. So this is the way it looks, right? The son redeems because the father decrees it to be so. This is why Jesus would say things. I do my father's will. Right. The, the spirit gifts and seals his people. The son is sent from the father. The spirit is sent from the son. The father honors the son as the son glorifies the father. Then the spirit glorifies the son. We're going to deal more with this on Tuesday night. So come back for taco night and we'll, we'll deal with a little bit more of that because it's essential that we understand that this is not just Paul in a chauvinistic way saying, hey, men are men need to do this and women need to do this and coming up with something. He's saying this is how God displays his glory. If you want the world to see God, you're going to have to get this right. As the church, we're going to have to display this correctly. And modern Christians spend a whole lot of time debating the function of men and women in the church and rightfully so. He deals with function. Paul deals with functions of men and women in the church in several other passages that we're going to look at next week. But in this passage, he spends a lot of time actually talking about appearance and form, about what we look like, not the function, but about the form of men and women. So because that's the, what this passage does, that's where we're going to focus. So let's spend the rest of our time doing that. God's design, I want you to see this today. God's design is for men and women to be equal in worth and distinct in appearance. This is the issue of form within the church, that we look different. And the form and appearance of men and women really demonstrates a lot about the willingness that we have as men and women to accept God's design for the function within the church. Whenever we tend to throw off the vestiges of the form of manhood and womanhood, we're gonna, we show ourselves most of the time to have a really hard time with the function of manhood and womanhood. This is women's lib, right? That radical feminism that threw off things in order to not hold on to the things of femininity, right? And in the same way, men were taking on things, putting on things to in the sexual revolution to not show that they were masculine. It's a bizarre reality that we're constantly trying to reverse God's design, even in form and appearance. And we want to make sure in the church we're not messing that up. So the overarching principle is this. Men and women must have distinct appearances in order to display God's created design for men and women and to display the restored design of God to display his glory. Let the world mess it up. But in the church, let's get it right. Let the world mess it up. Because Romans 1 tells us they will, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. Let's make sure the church gets it right. Now, 
Is this an issue of head coverings? Is this an issue of pants versus skirts? Is this an issue of should I wear a suit every Sunday? No, none of those things are really the issue because what did Paul say the issue is? It's an issue of submission. It's an issue of design. It's an issue of hierarchy. It's an issue of Christ as head over the husband, husband as head over the wife, making sure the church is displaying the differentiated roles between men and women. And we do that in form first. Kevin DeYoung says, confusing the appearance of our genders is contrary to nature. The theological foundation of this passage is that it is disgraceful for a man to appear to be a woman or a woman to be appear to be a man. That's the idea. He goes on to say, God made men and women to be different. And when we confuse those differences, we are confusing what God designed to bring him glory. When we mess it up in the church, the one place on earth where God is supposed to be clearly seen to the world around us, when we mess up gender roles in appearance, we look no different than the rest of the world. How are we going to put God's glory on display? See, what happens, though, is we desire things that aren't meant for us. And that's really at the heart, the very heart of the sin issue. Isn't that what happened in the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden, God said, hey, you can have everything to eat, just not that tree. But I want that tree. That's humanity at our core. You can have all of this. You can't have that, but I want that. Men, you can do all of this, but you can't do that. But I want to do that. Women, you can do all of this, but you can't do that. But I want to do that. What's the easiest way to get somebody to do something is to tell them they can't do it. This is the reality of sinful humanity, and we need to come to terms with that. That's at the very heart of what it means to rebel against a holy God. It means that we're desiring actually sameness with one another as opposed to sameness with the one that created us in his image. See, God's displaying his image through us, male and female. And to desire to be the same as one another is to deny the very image of God and the sameness we have with his image. So while men and women are equal in worth, God is shown to be our glory by our distinctions in appearance and form. Simply put, men are to appear to be men. And women are appear to be women because that's the way God intended it. Now, that changes culturally over time, doesn't it? There's different things that make men men and women women. And we don't want to fall into the trap culturally, right? Especially in a day and age when I was reading a book and it's like, you know, the fact is, it's like Johnny Depp is pirates are wearing makeup, right? I mean, that's what that's what all the pirates are wearing a lot of makeup and all of our rock stars are wearing makeup. And, you know, the fact is we watch football on TV and everybody's got makeup on. Everybody's making themselves look better. And there's a whole lot of realities out there in the culture that we have to come to terms with. But I want to make sure you put, get this straight. We don't know what these head coverings were. We don't know if they were a shawl, a prayer shawl, if they were actually just the long hair. There are different scholars that come down in different places. But the issue here is not the covering itself. It's the, it's the appearance of submission versus leadership. That's the issue. It's the issue of submission versus leadership. In the same way Paul addresses clothing and modesty in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9, he says women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. And then in Peter says it in 1 Peter, he says this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, wives be subject to your own husbands 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, and he says this in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Okay, I don't think Peter there is arguing don't wear clothes so that you can look holy. Is everybody with me? It's a symbol. Everybody walking this, this walk with me? Okay, the head coverings are the same way. He's, they're, a, they're a symbol of something. There the clothing was a, a symbol of the reality of the respectful heart, the heart of respectable nature, the quiet and gentle spirit, making sure that that imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty comes through. For us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's about God's design coming through. Peter isn't saying don't wear any clothing. He's using clothing as a symbol, an appearance of something that is true of the function of women and of the heart of women. The same is true of the head coverings. Head coverings or a lack of head coverings were a form, an appearance that demonstrated a function within the household of faith. See, while men and women are equal in worth, God is shown to be our glory by our distinctions in appearance and form, especially in the church. Especially in the church. So just to be clear, I want you to see that this passage is not just a prohibition in form and appearance for women. It doesn't just say women must or women shouldn't. It also says men must and men shouldn't. Everybody caught that, right? So let's not fall into the trap of making this all about what women must or can't do. This is about all of us. And it's all of us working together to demonstrate God's design. The head coverings are cultural symbols of a greater reality, godly distinctions between men and women. The first way that happens is head coverings symbolized submission. The word for head here is kephale, and it means authority over. So the idea is Christ has authority over, the husband has authority over. And so covering heads, uncovering heads demonstrates who the authority is. Is everybody with me on that? And so when we are talking about cultural realities in the church, distinctions between men and women, what's really at stake here is are we demonstrating the authority structure of the church? Are we demonstrating how God has designed the church to be? Men submitting to Christ, wives submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord. It does not say wives submitting to every man. This is not a harsh authority because he goes on to say as Christ submits to the Father or submits to God. He lays that out as a demonstration of the Father's love for his Son. So if you think about authority and submission, that was not a harsh authority coming from the Father on his Son because they had eternal love for one another. And it wasn't some demeaning submission. It was a willing, joyful submission to the Father in his will. It accomplished the purpose for which He was sent to the earth. And when we submit to God's will and his design, then we're accomplishing the purpose for which we exist as the church. Head covering symbolized submission, but they also symbolized God's design for male leadership in the church. There is a hierarchical structure that works its way down. And it's not value. It's not importance. It's function and design. 
It's the way God intended things to be. God's design is being reclaimed in the local church with men and women joyfully taking their God-given roles. When we take those roles that God has given us, when men take the role of leadership in their home and in the church, and women take the role joyfully of serving and loving and supporting and making sure that men remain qualified to lead. It's a huge responsibility. I know plenty of men who have been disqualified to lead by the actions of their, or sometimes the tongues of their wives. And I've known many women who were walking in godliness and holiness in spite of their husbands. Not because of their husband's leadership. No, we're supposed to be doing this together because God's design lays out great responsibility on qualified men to serve as pastors, as elders to lead and to serve. And God's design lays great freedom and responsibility on women to serve, to pray, to support, to encourage, to keep qualified men qualified, to be helpers as God designed. When we do this together, God is glorified. The appearance or form of manhood and womanhood in the church, the true righteous masculinity and manhood and the true righteous femininity and womanhood within the church strengthens the body of Christ. This is how we grow stronger. When we start exchanging those forms and those functions is when we get ourselves askew. Now, so just as an aside, let me, let me make this clear. I want to be pastoral for just a moment. I know this is a tender issue for many. With terms like toxic masculinity, however people define that, it changes all the time. Floating around and the reality that, and this is a true reality, that men have sinfully used authority and power to denigrate and demean women in society, in families, and in the church. That is a reality. I want to remind you that just because a truth is misused doesn't make it less true. The good application of God's word is what we're after, the right application of God's word. Women have felt subjugated or lesser than because they don't fit the typical cultural mold of femininity. Maybe you're strong or strong-willed or strong in personality. And I know that this is a tender issue for some men as well who don't gravitate towards tools and hunting and sports and traditional manhood. Look, I lived in the inner city of Kansas City before I moved here. People own guns for a different reason than you all own guns. (laughs) Masculinity looked a lot different there than it does here. Right? That's the reality. So let's not buy into any culture's definition of femininity and masculinity. We go to God's word. We want to be biblical men, biblical women. So I want to say this very clearly we don't take our cues from what a, for what a man is or what a woman is from our culture or from a bygone era of culture but we do say this if god's people want to demonstrate god's glory to a world that is confused about gender and sexuality and about god's design for men and women we better not be confused we better make sure we know we're rooted in god and his word It should be clear what we believe, what we accept, what we embrace, what we celebrate as we celebrate and embrace the differences between men and women in the family and in the church. Why is this important? Bruce Ware says that the church is unfaithful in this place where the culture is putting its greatest pressure on us. We'll have to give an account before God of the failure to uphold the truth and to concede to the culture things that we should never have done. 
And of course, if we give in here, where else will we give in? You see, nobody, nobody's coming to me from the prevailing culture saying, I need you to explain the Trinity because I'm not sure you guys got that right. I have an idea about the Trinity. We as a culture have an idea about the Trinity. I need you guys to make sure you have all your I's dotted and T's crossed. Nobody's coming to you and saying, you know, I really think transubstantiation, if you don't even know what that is, right? Right. I mean, and they're, they're, nobody's coming to you with the doctrines of grace. Nobody's coming to you with the what they are is they're saying sexuality, gender. And that's where all the pressure is. And if they're confused, as they rightfully should be, because of Romans one, we better not be. Because of the rest of the Bible. We have God in his word. We want to make sure we're coming under it. So finally, head covering symbolized interdependence. That's verse 11. In the Lord, man and women do not operate independently of one another. Men and women need each other in the family and within the church. This is shown in different ways. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Man was not created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. This is God's design that we would do this interdependently. The way men and women relate to one another in the church demonstrates the way husbands and the wives should relate to one another within the family. So if you're struggling within your family to take on your God-given roles, you should be able to look at the church and see what God's design is in a bigger form. But if we're messed up here, no wonder families are messed up. But it should look like loving submission to a loving husband who sacrificially loves like Jesus. And the way men and women relate to one another in the church demonstrates a mutual need for one another. I need you, ladies. We need each other. You need the men in this church. Men, you need the women in this church. The way men and women relate to one another in the church demonstrates the reliability of God's plan to the world that's watching. And not only that, it demonstrates our reliance on God's plan to a world that's watching. Do we rely on God and his word his plan, his gospel for our church. The way men and women relate to one another in the church demonstrates our reliance on God's plan, on his gospel, and on his word. It even says there that the angels are watching to see what we'll do with it. Do we rely on God and his word? Do we believe that God's word is true and good? So Christian, if the light has come, into the darkness of your mind through the gospel. If you've been brought out of darkness to light in your knowledge and your wisdom and your understanding, if you've been given the light of God's word, why in the world would we ever return to a cultural understanding of anything? And especially those things related to God and his creation of humanity. The pinnacle of his creation where he imprinted his image to be known to the world around. Why would we go to anyone else than God himself who made us? Because we're meant to display his glory and his goodness as male and female. We're going to sing in just a moment as Peggy comes to help lead us. I just want to give us pause because next week we're going to deal with some of the functions. And before we get to that, it's really important that we don't fall into this trap that we don't start saying yeah and they 
No, it's got to be first, oh, and I need to. Oh, and I need to consider. I need to consider whether my masculinity is a biblical masculinity or if it's just me puffing my chest out. Guys, it would be really easy for us to read this and puff our chest out. I say, yep, that's right. You all better learn to submit without realizing the great call on your life to submit to Christ as your head. I want to remind you what Christ called all those who would submit to him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So, guys, this isn't about puffing up. This is about denying self. Let me remind you what Paul said to those men who were married. Love your, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her holy and blameless. And ladies, it's really easy for you to go, well, that's the reason I can't submit is because he won't submit. His lack of submission isn't keeping you from submitting. Amen. Your lack of submission is keeping you from submitting. Let's not point the finger before we understand the word works on us first. And when we accept God-given form, when we begin to say, all right, let's make the appearance clear to the world around us what we know the word of God teaches in every aspect, but especially where God's image is on display in our lives as men and women, in our lives as with our boys and our girls and raising them to know that they are made in the image of God and they are the chief way, the chief way that God puts his glory on display every day is the way he created us, man and woman. Let's walk in that today. Father, I pray that we would be set on fire for your